0: All right. Good afternoon. This is Dick and Dirt with Mike and Adam. Episode...
1: It is episode 13 in the second season. In the second season.
0: Wow. Mid-July. Mid-July. Today's the 21st of July. It is hotter than shit out again. And this has been an ongoing ongoing deal here, Mike. So I actually appreciate it's one o'clock in the afternoon. I'm sitting in the office doing a podcast and it feels great. It does. it does. It does. I, I feel have you ever seen that Seinfeld episode
1: when Kramer comes out of his uh, apartment and he's got these sunglasses on because Kenny Rogers roaster beam his, lights come through his window and he's all burnt. <laughs> That's the way I feel coming out of the field every day. It is just I've used so much sunscreen this year. It's crazy.
0: Well, you're, you're looking good. I'm glad you're keeping <laughs> that sunscreen. You got a nice tan going, silky yeah. smooth skin. Yeah, I'm going to be sitting on a hot beach soon. Oh, yeah. You're, you're heading on vacation here shortly, aren't you? Yep. Taking the whole fam damnly. Nope, just my wife and my loving daughter. Oh, oh. awesome. The rest of them you just don't care enough about to take them on vacation? Or what? They have babies. They can't travel. Oh, man. <laughs> those kids, they screw up a lot of things, don't they? Yeah. <laughs> All right. Yeah. And corn right now, pollinating pretty hard. What have you been seeing? Yeah, it's
1: pollinating, and, and even in the uh, far reaches in the western part of our district, uh, pushing tassels, uh, it's just moving along quite a long, and the soybeans finally started taking off and growing, and uh, the fields are looking much better now. I, it always seemed like there's such a struggle to get them to canopy, and uh, now we're starting to get the beans to look really like they're growing rapidly, vegetatively, as they are in their reproductive modes, too. And
0: yep, Yeah, yep. corn, corn overall. Across the state, looking, looking decent. You know, a lot of the weather events have really screwed things up. Had some storms come through the last few weeks. You know, there's yeah. a lot of fields around that aren't, you know, they're still a week off of tasseling.
1: Yeah, yeah. we've got two or three leaves in some fields to go yet before tassel. Yes. But uh, nice thing. Good news. We got a cooler weather coming. You're,
0: tr- you're trusting the forecast and the weather people yeah, this year? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I trust those weather people right now in the forecast about as much as I trust some of these farmer myths that are going around. Yeah. One in one in particular, as the corn is hot and dry, I hear this all the time. We just, we got to let it roll, got to let it stress, got to let it root down. Yeah.
1: My dad used to say that all the time. We're not going to water that corn. We're going to let that stuff root down. If don't you don't, the that. roots are sitting on top of the soil. I don't get <laughs> it. But you know who we got today? We've got a guest today that's going to help us with these myths. Do uh, we? Th-
0: who do we have today? <laughs>
1: yeah. We got uh, Dr. Jeff Schissler. Jeff worked many years with Corteva uh, as a research fellow, a uh, finished as a research fellow and you retired a couple of years ago and you got your own company now, Jeff.
2: Yeah, I'm doing some consulting. I call it Schussler Ag Research Solutions. And so I do some uh, uh, consulting for Corteva and a couple of other clients. Uh, I'm very excited about doing work still on traits, looking at plot quality, doing a little bit of a communication to growers like this. I enjoy doing this sort of thing a lot. So that's kind of what my life is like. I've got a lot more flexibility in my schedule now, though.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I remember going to our agronomy conferences and your presentations were always a lot of information that I'd never got anywhere else. It was just so interesting. I could just dive into that on plant stresses and things like that. So I, I've always enjoyed your presentations on that. So
0: we're going to hit you hard today. We are going to hit you hard today. because, uh, <laughs> Yeah. You know, you just, you mentioned how you like uh, communicating with farmers and still doing a lot of research and, and uh, working with trades and, I personally don't know you, but I've heard a lot about you, and most of it was good. So we'll there start you. with that. <laughs> I fold a few few people. <laughs> <laughs> but we get we get all kinds of things throughout the year on what what is what is accurate, what is not. Mike and I we've been trying to find a good you know a plant physiologist to talk to us about so much stuff that's happening in these plants right now, and and honestly everybody we talk to seems to go back to the same shit you can find on Google, yeah. you know? <laughs> yeah. And it, it drives me nuts. Like, I want to know, I want to know exactly is this right or is this wrong or what is happening in the plant right now? Can we, you know, can we change Can we change things now? Is it too late? And we hear all kinds of things from farmers and we're going to, we are going to try and bust some myths today with your knowledge. All right. And maybe they're not myths. Maybe they're accurate too. We don't, we don't know, but um, yeah,
1: I think a lot of these myths and things might've been true at the time when your dad said them or your grandpa said them, but things have just changed. Technologies change, hybrids change and conditions change and they're not true anymore. You know, there's a lot, so many of those kind of things like that. So we've been kind of hungry for stepping it up into a deeper level, Jeff, and uh, hopefully we can work on those. So.
2: Yeah, yeah I'll, I'll throw out a, I'll throw out a r- spaghetti comment kind of regarding that. Yeah, that your, your comment about things that really have changed. I mean, these hybrids don't respond the same way they used to. I mean, we've made so many advances in plant breeding in the last 20, 30 years. Uh, just amazing that a lot of the old assumptions or old wives' tales or whatever you want to call it, they might have been partially true at one time. But with new genetics, a lot of those rules are out the window. And and, and, and that 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 also... That's also related to some of the predictions that you see in the popular press about the world coming to an end regarding food production. I mean, I've, I've done a lot of research understanding global climate change and how it actually, actually will impact us in this century. And it's really not as bad as they say, because because most of the plant growth models that are predicting all this doom and gloom are based on hybrids from 50 years ago. And they're not they're not incorporating new genetics. They're not incorporating new technology. Uh, they're making all these assumptions that are not correct anymore. And so that's one of my pet peeves is all these projections of all this negative response and everybody's going to be starving because our plant breeders can't do their job and keep developing hybrids to deal with whatever climate we face in the next hundred years. So that that's just one of my opinions. And I think it's based on reality that we've got a lot of technology in this world that we're going to be able to feed the feed the world.
1: Yeah, well said. I tell you what, I couldn't agree more. You know, it seems like things change but uh, we are constantly researching and changing ourselves too so we can adapt to the changing environment and things like that that we face.
0: So. Yep, for sure. Man I, I heard some passion in there Jeff. <laughs>
2: well, I get, I get kind of fired up about this because I, I actually give a full hour presentation on this to lots of pioneer growers and agronomists over the last several years so I've had lots of interaction with our clientele regarding their concerns about this. And so I, it's something I, I have actually d- dived into pretty deeply. So there, when you actually look at the facts, the science does not support what you read in the in the popular press.
0: We talk about this all the time. As much heat as we're going through right now, too, is there is there a difference between heat stress and drought stress on corn? And can we do anything to alleviate heat stress? Because one thing I hear all the time, too, with center pivot irrigation is that if we water less but faster, we can cool the plant and relieve heat stress.
2: Well, I've got a couple comments I can throw out. Um, so first of all, just that regarding that uh, the eternal question of heat stress versus drought stress. Yeah, they're 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 both a, a negative impact on the corn crop. Um, uh, I would say they're additive. Uh, I think if you look at the overall impact, I think drought stress is pretty, pretty significant when you're when you run out of water, the, the crop doesn't have too many options. If it's hot. There are ways that the the plant can adapt to that a little bit, frankly, short term and long term. But when you're out of water, you're pretty much out of water. So, so, uh, so I would say the drought stress is a little more uh, acute, shall we say, uh, whereas heat stress is a little more of a chronic stress over the season. Uh, So I look at them in kind of two different ways. Now, Certainly, they interact though. I can guarantee you that, um, that, that, that corn can handle a lot of drought stress if it's 80 or 85 degrees. But if it's, if it's dry and you're now all of a sudden 95 degrees, now you got problems. So the heat, the heat really, really just makes the drought stress so much more severe because uh, it's, it's, it's basically generating uh, vapor pressure deficits to make that plant want to pump more water. And if there's not much water in the soil, that's when you're really getting into trouble. So, so the heat certainly complicates drought. But I would look at drought as the first factor in stress rather rather than heat. That, that, that's been my experience. Uh, now what can we do about it or what, what what have we done about it to make plants a little more resilient towards those things? Um, I, I would say uh, that's, that's an area I've spent a lot of time in. I help, I was one of the researchers that helped develop the Occamax hybrids over the last 15 years. and and set up that whole system for screening for those. And and there's several things you can do to make sure that you eliminate uh, the most susceptible hybrids for drought. We've we've done a really good job in Pioneer, now Corteva, to eliminate the really weak hybrids. And we've done a really good job of identifying the the (laughs) 0.1% that are really, really good uh, and have some unique traits that allow them to manage drought stress uh, a lot less negatively than an average corn hybrid. Uh, these, these hybrids have some uh, native traits. Uh, these are mostly native traits that I'm talking about. They are all native traits that we've been able to select for in the breeding organization and through screening in places like the Central Valley of California or, or West Texas, those, those really hot, dry places where we do a lot of this research. And we screen in those areas and we can identify those things that can still silk, for example, under extreme drought stress. I that's the first thing that's going to fail is you're silking. That's still a, that's still a vulnerable part of the corn plant. So we can, we can very quickly identify the things that have an immediate or a, an amazing power to continue to silk even under severe drought stress. So we do that. We identify things that can conserve water. That's what a lot of the Aquamax hybrids have. They have a trait in them called the slow wilting trait. And that's a good thing because they actually basically close their stomates earlier in the day. In other words, save the water. And instead of rolling up and wilting, they just leave their leaves straight out, but they're, but they're still closing off all the water flow. And so that allows them to conserve water to get further down the season to catch a rainfall, for example, in the dryland corn areas. Maybe you can hang in there another couple of weeks and then catch a rainfall and get some decent yield out of those fields. So that's, a, that's what we call a context dependent trait. It kicks in when you need it, but it doesn't hurt you uh, under good conditions. If you're under irrigated conditions or good rainfall patterns, doesn't hurt you. So that's okay, the kind of stop, thing that, that stop,
0: stop right there, Jeff. <laughs> stop right there. You just blew my mind there for one second, so I'm going to stop okay. you. So the plant itself can trigger the the stomates to close without rolling the leaf to reduce mm-hmm. light interception. So we can that, still mm-hmm. have optimum photosynthesis and and sunlight capture and canopy closure without releasing water by closing stomates
2: right that, that that is correct now if if you're in that situation where they have to almost completely close the stomates to save that water their their photosynthesis is also going to be reduced somewhat but it won't be as bad because at least the leaves are still out there collecting sunlight and there will be a little photosynthesis if you look at a hybrid that rolls really fast uh, yeah those those hybrids aren't going to be generating any any carbon capture <laughs> so 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 yeah there is there is a physiological difference and that's a trait that we've had folks at uh, uh, NC state north carolina state have done all the academic work on that and they, they've actually given it the name slow wilting trait and it, and they've analyzed a whole bunch of pioneer hybrids and confirmed the ones that we claimed were doing it in the field and they've, they've been able to prove it in controlled experiments so so that's that's an example of a physiological understanding of what our products actually do. You know, we were screening the products in the field for yield and then we were observing things along the way. And we said, okay, we think this is what's happening and boom, you get somebody to confirm that. And there you go.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I I can vouch just that slow wheel thing. I'm walking research trials and my arms are brushing up against a hybrid on the left. That's completely unrolled. Uh, The leaves, it's still means it's probably closed, but the leaves are open, open and, flat, shading the soil. The soil is cooler underneath there and and dark. Mm -hmm. And then the one on the other side is rolled. The leaves are very hot. The temperature of the leaves got to be 20, 25 degrees hotter than the other one. And there's so much sunlight hitting the soil that the soil is over 100 degrees itself. Uh, It's just a self-fulfilling thing that that plant is going to fail quicker when those leaves are rolled so early, like at 10 o'clock in the morning. It's uh, uh, amazing the difference between those type of products.
2: Yeah, and, and that slow wilting also uh, helps us uh, with the Aquamax maintain their stay green later in the season. That's why they can stay green longer in a drought environment compared to some other competitor products that tend to fire up from the bottom pretty darn fast after flowering. Uh, that's that's another one of the traits It's an, another advantage there is that stay green.
0: Okay, I'm, I'm going to go right into something that plays into this a little bit, but it's a little off. And it's the question around plant respiration then mm-hmm. um, and slowing that down, especially like these high nighttime temps that we're getting right now, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of these mid seventies, I mean, it's not getting below 75 very right. often here lately, you know, there's been a few nights dump, dumping down maybe into the upper sixties, but if we're staying above 75 at night, we're st- that plant just isn't having time to really shut down is, is really what we always hear. And we've got to find ways to slow respiration to where we aren't having, quote, dark respiration, where we're burning uh, sugars and, and uh, carbohydrates without actually photosynthesizing. Is that accurate? For one, are, is there dark respiration that is a negative impact to plants if they don't cool down, specifically corn? And two, are there products that we can apply to slow respiration to get us through those periods of high nighttime temps?
2: First of all, uh, the concept of the high temperatures at night uh, being responsible for a a significantly more energy loss or respiration. That's true. Uh, Yes, that's true for sure. Uh, Basically, the plant is just kind of in a maintenance uh, situation overnight. It is just trying to cool off and keep all the factory running, you know, so to speak, for the next day for when the lights come on. But I will argue this, that hot temperatures in the day are equally or even more negative Because think about it, when you get over about 85 degrees, uh, your rate of photosynthesis already starts going down due to the heat. Uh, That that particular process, photosynthesis is optimum right around 85 to 87. And once you get above it in the low 90s, and certainly by the time you get to the high 90s, you're reducing your photosynthetic rate tremendously. And so that really hurts you because now you haven't even captured the carbon. At least if you capture the carbon, uh, you the plants can deal with the respiration at night but if you're not capturing the carbon during the day you're definitely going to go on the hole that night <laughs> so I would argue that the day is still the most critical the day temperatures and, and that's not even to mention the more critical acute things like if you get over 100 degrees and you start running into pollination issues because your pollen viability starts to go to crap when you get above 100 degrees it's uh, the silks can be an issue too but it's Above 100, the pollen really starts becoming an issue regarding viability. So, so that's one of those really acute things. If you get unlucky and you're 105 degrees for two days right in the middle of pollination, you're you're in bad shape. I mean that that uh, again, that's a day temperature thing. It has nothing to do with respiration at night. So they're they're yeah. both very negative, of course. But I I am much more concerned about the extremes during the day, the the, the maximum temperatures during the day, than the maximum temperatures or the minimum temperatures at night. Frankly, uh, that's so- been my experience
1: a corn plant could actually go in the deficit in the day, just trying to cool itself. It's yes. It's, it, yes. it could just be deficit there. So is the corn plant still aging? I mean, it's still
2: yes. like
1: in GDUs and it's still aging and it's increasing its, or it's life cycles going on.
2: Yeah. It's still going through the normal uh, progression, if you will, or the, or the program of its development uh, that GDU, I mean, unless the plants are close to dead because of so severe drought stress, I mean, then they start kind of totally shutting down. But in in a normal situation where, yeah, they're under some stress, yeah, every day or going through cycles, they're still developing. They're still moving through the stages. That grain's still going to develop. You know, everything's going to happen. It may be uh, retarded a little bit or inhibited, but it's still going through the stages. Yes, it doesn't really change the rate of development. Uh, Again, corn maxes maxes out at about 88 degrees as far as rate. It's not going to get any faster in the 90s. Uh, You're just burning off extra energy in the 90s. That's the problem. Once you get in the 90s, everybody says, oh, corn grows great under hot weather. Well, to a point. Once you get to about 90, then everything's perfect. But once you get to the mid 90s, you're going backwards a little bit. Yeah.
0: Okay, but let's clarify something for a second. Because if we're talking, I mean, I'm picturing these growers right now listening to this podcast freaking out because we've been so hot and also calling the bullshit card because we've grown really good corn in a lot of really high temps out in the Western uh, High Plains area. Mm -hmm. So I could see them pulling the bullshit card saying, well, geez, we need these temps to get us going. Mm -hmm. But is, is it truly, I mean, obviously the daytime temp has, has a big role in it because that's going to dictate the canopy temperature Mm -hmm. within the field also. But are we truly talking about excessive heat daytime or within that plant canopy? Because example today, this morning I was out in a field, I mean it couldn't have been 77 78 degrees in that plant canopy fully shaded underneath it. I could see maybe where these this upper leaf structure was hot, but as I'm walking through there, soil level to 8 foot high, it was in it had to have been in the lower 80s, oh, yeah. high 70s.
2: Oh yeah. Yeah, the the evaporative cooling of a corn canopy is an amazing air conditioner. It is incredibly mm-hmm. good. Yes. And so my statement about maximum temperatures, um, it's it certainly uh, modified if you have a situation where you got water in the ground versus really dry. If it's really dry, that canopy is gonna heat up because now they, they run out of water to transpire and yeah, they're gonna heat up. But under, if you've got certainly in an irrigated field or if you've got water in the profile yet, those plants are gonna pump water like crazy and they it can be it can be 105 degree air temperature, and that is still going to be 85 or less. It's, okay, it's so- amazing because they're they're just so efficient at pumping water. As a matter of fact, little known fact in the Midwest United States, where we grow all this corn, you know, 90 million acres of corn and 90 million acres of, co- of soybeans, our maximum afternoon day temperatures have actually gone down about three degrees Fahrenheit in the last hundred years. Not they've not gone up because <laughs> wow. we are growing so much better crops now, and so many millions of acres. That, the, that the, we actually have a giant crop air conditioner in all the Midwest states.
0: Okay, it's over how? Keeping the afternoons cooler. It tracked over how many years?
2: Over the last hundred years, our, our last- afternoon temperatures, maximum temperatures, Nebraska, Kansas, Missouri, Iowa, Illinois, they're actually two or three degrees Fahrenheit cooler than they were 100 years ago.
0: All right. I was gonna say maybe in the last 20 years, that's a fact for sure for the fact that we don't have near as much sorghum or wheat.
2: Well, yeah, that's, that's a
0: factor too. <laughs> you know, because that those types of crops, uh, it, you know, they don't really reduce anything. In fact, it feels like they heat up the atmosphere right. exactly. around them.
2: Exactly, exactly. So,
0: but with as much corn and soybeans as we have and the way that they are very efficient with cooling themselves through water and the abundance of water that we do have and the majority of the area you talked about was highly irrigated or substantial rainfall areas. Um, I could definitely see that, but that's a great known fact, but let's go back to then if it, if it's fully canopied, great biomass in the plant and irrigated that plant may not go through any type of stress, even when it is 105 for the fact that it is capable of keeping that canopy at a cool enough temperature that that entire kind of field environment that it is in is uh, relieved of stress.
2: Very much so. Yeah. uh, These plants are incredibly efficient at using water to basically cool their system. And they kind of laugh at those hot temperatures to, uh, to a certain point. Uh, Again, if you've got a really hot, windy day, that's really pulling a lot of air over that corn crop. Yeah. That can cause a little bit of that, the, the light rolling, you know, just because they just can't pump fast enough. But in general, under a normal hot afternoon with mild little breeze, yeah, they're they're amazingly efficient, and they're not really under that much stress. Quite honestly, (laughs) they really aren't.
1: Yeah. Hmm. In the inverse of that, Jeff, say the canopy's cooler, but you know it's a hundred degree day, and the canopy inside there is eighty degrees. Is it also true that at night it's harder to release that heat out of that canopy? Um, Say the nighttime. yeah, it just keep it warmer inside there.
2: It's true. You're right. And that's that's the flip side of some of these bigger uh, environmental trends. Uh, generally, we are seeing warmer night temperatures everywhere, uh, everywhere, because because we're pumping a lot of water into the into the atmosphere with these great crops. And so that keeps you cooler in the afternoon. Unfortunately, if you got more water vapor in the air at night, uh, that mm-hmm. holds a lot of heat. And so that's one reason our minimum night temperatures t- are tending to be a little warmer. Uh, in most of the corn growing areas and yeah it, it makes it a little harder to release all the heat from the canopy as fast uh, because uh, now you've got unlike in a desert where where as soon as the sun goes down all that heat radiates out really fast because there's low humidity when you get high humidity you can't get rid of the heat from the canopy as fast so that is a bit of a negative yes
0: huh. that's why everybody freezes to death in a desert at yep. night
2: that's right.
0: Yeah, there's no nothing to keep it <laughs> cooled off. That's right. And you can sleep overnight in a snow drift in the Arctic just fine.
2: Exactly. Exactly. That's right.
0: Yeah. this <laughs> just blew my mind right now, Jeff. It just blew my mind. Okay, back to this. Though. So can we slow respiration? It, can we use, let's talk specifically like a strobular and fungicide active mm-hmm. ingredient which there's been a ton of claims about plant health, slowing respiration, which will relieve some of that nighttime stress or make it efficient to where we're not excessively burning energy without Mm -hmm. photosynthesis. In your opinion or fact, is that true? Can that help?
2: Uh, I've seen some data, some research reports that would suggest they have some impact on those mechanisms, whether it's significant or repeatable uh, may be up for question. Uh, are, are they on the right track? I think they are. There may be some situations where it's paying off, but the bottom line, the, the main effect of these fungicides is certainly on disease disease development for sure. Uh, they may have some secondary impacts, but those are going to be much more dependent on very specific environmental conditions or a hybrid or time of, timing of the year or something. So th- they wouldn't be like a a, a no brainer that you're guaranteed every time. That's for sure. Uh, could it could it work in a few situations? Yes, but I, I'm not convinced that it's a phenomenon that they can sell on necessarily. <laughs> I mean, I, I know they are, uh, but I wouldn't I wouldn't buy that with that expectation in mind. i would put it that way. If I'm concerned about disease development on crop, I'm going to put my fungicide on, and anything else is bonus, in my opinion. Uh, and so that that that's something that. I'd say still up in the air a little bit. Um, people are looking at a trait, some traits that could have impact, reduced respiration at night. It's very challenging. It's a complex, you know, mechanism, of course. Uh, and so it's going to be cha- challenged, but that's certainly a target that Corteva and others have looked at, of course, to see if you can re- reduce respiration through modifying one of the native corn genes or inserting a, a, a novel gene, that, that sort of thing. So, so there's certainly interest in this and it does represent a... a Potential improvement in corn production in this century for sure. Yes, it is a target. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I just uh, in front of my research trials. I'm I'm battling weeds all the time. If you could imagine that water hemp being that main one Mm -hmm. in Palmer. Um, Water hemp has an amazing trait in it that it has absolutely no root system. It can grow a foot in a week, and (laughs) it's just like never stresses. I would love to know what that plant does. That <laughs> is so good at re- reproducing. It's just yeah,
0: incredible. I, I,
2: I don't really know either What what is so, what's so unique about that species that make, makes it so fast growing. Uh, just amazing. It is an amazing thing. You're right.
0: <laughs> okay. What about yeah. biologicals? biologicals? Are, you, are, you, are you up to speed testing any of these biologicals that can help reduce abiotic stresses from the environment?
2: I'm aware of some of that testing Uh, I've been, I've been aware I've been involved in a little bit of that in my previous life at Corteva. Uh, I know there's still ongoing work within Corteva right now on it and many other companies are also looking at this. Uh, I do a little consulting in the biologicals world as well, so I know I know a little bit about it. Uh, I, I, I would say there are, again, some very specific targets that uh, companies and universities are looking at for improving overall abiotic stress tolerance with biologicals. Uh, I'm, 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 I'm inherently skeptical because I've worked in drought stress my entire career, and it is so complex that most uh, most folks that get in this field are a bit naive about what they think they can do and how fast they can do it. Uh, I'm not naive at all and I know how long it takes to do anything in drought. So 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 again, I think it's a valuable target for that technology. Do I expect it to, to increase yields 10 or 20 percent in my lifetime? No, I don't. Uh, so, so, um, it, but, but certainly there's some very interesting research going on in that area. And it's, uh, again, it's, it's, it's like everything else we do. I mean, you want as many tools in the toolbox as you can get. If you happen to find something that maybe gives you some advantages, especially early in development, uh, that, that I do believe that there's a role for biologicals and early plant development and establishment of uniformity. For sure, uh, usually related to nutrient uptake and root development, uh, but especially regarding full size plants under drought at flowering time. Uh, that that's that's going to be a lot of harder nut to crack, in my opinion, in my experience. Right?
0: What what is an abiotic stress?
2: Right, there would be a list of three or four that that those of us in research are implying when we say abiotic stress. Number one is drought. Number okay. two is heat. Uh, number three. Um, would be low nitrogen, uh, uh, reduced nitrogen or nitrogen, uh, a field that say had too much leaching or it's gone marginal as far as nitrogen amount, because that's an abiotic stress. Um, You could also look at uh, standability, uh, basically wind pressure is an abiotic stress. It's not not a biological thing. It's basically caused by nature. (laughs) So those are the abiotic stresses we're talking about. And as you can imagine, those are all to be put in the bucket of yield stability. I mean, okay. basically, our plant breeders do this great job of developing yield potential in these hybrids, and people like me who've spent spent our careers trying to stabilize that yield and and protect it by making the plants more tolerant of both abiotic and biotic stresses. Because so, I've worked on corn rootworm and ECB and all those other things too, of course, a lot. So, so though, so I worked on both biotic and abiotic. But when you talk about abiotic, you're primarily talking about things caused by nature that are not. A bug, or a weed, or a disease.
1: <laughs> it would uh, like extreme temperature fluctuations come into that too. Like we got a ninety-five degree day in three days. We get three days of highs of seventy-two, and uh, and then it goes back to nineties again during ear development time. I imagine that would be an abiotic type stress. That is it?
2: definitely an abiotic stress. If you talk about some some wild diurnal fluctuations within a day, or even. You know, fluctuations over a couple of days like that—that is bad for a plant. I mean, it's hard for the plant to adapt quickly to extreme temperature extremes. That's why we occasionally have some trouble with herbicide applications. You know, early, like in V six to V eight, when it's either all of a sudden really cold or really hot, that freaks the plants out and they can't metabolize the herbicide. You know, and they get a little more crop injury. So that's that's a well known phenomenon, but it can that certainly can. Uh, have some impacts later in development as well.
0: All right, I, I got one for you. Yep. <laughs> and I'm going to butcher this. I'm going <laughs> to butcher this word. Actually, I'm going to butcher all of the words that are included in this. It's a gamma-aminobutyric acid. Okay. Is that right? Do you know anything I, about I that? Yes, I've heard of it, yep. All right. So that, the only reason I'm bringing this up is because this is this isn't an, um, an ingredient within a product that was brought to my attention to spray on some of these cornfields and I wasn't certain what it was so I looked it up you know and what I had found what it is is actually uh, a neurotransmitter something in human brain cells Yep. Yep. right is that right (laughs) I think so I think
2: that's one of its modes of action yes
0: (laughs) yeah so how 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 or why is that out there to be sprayed on corn do you have any Uh idea
2: that, that I, I really don't have much of an idea on this one. I mean, it's like a, a lot of new discovery things. There's a, there's a multitude of small companies around the country that are into tech things, and they look at basic bio, plant biochemistry and they say, "Wow, here's a little pathway. I think I could change with this chemical." And they whip out a couple of experiments and they they get some 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 result, and they get all excited and they start marketing it, you know. And and so I suspect that that that's one of those and. And one in a million of those will work and the other 999 million don't or 99 don't obviously. So th- those are things that, again, I'm very skeptical about. I was, I was part of the program in pioneer at the time that tested all those things that came to us. Those vendors would come to pioneer, of course, and say, Hey, you, you guys are the top in your field. Uh, can you test this and tell us, tell us if this really works. And of course I was involved pretty dramatically in a few of those. <clears throat> and, uh, on paper, they always look really exciting. They have some good preliminary data, but we ran them through the mill, and uh, we were not seeing the the degree of response or the uh, uniformity of their response over environments. And we couldn't justify Cortev or Pioneer marketing that product. So I've I've turned I've ter- I, I've never been involved with one that succeeded. I'll put it that way. <laughs>
0: Interesting.
1: Yeah. The world of biologicals and things like that is crazy. I mean, but yeah, I that- was
0: reading it. It's, so that, that is, a, it's a chemical that is made in the brain and also found in some foods, yeah. but it's the main amino acid that is a main inhibitor of neurotransmitters in yeah. the mammalian brain.
2: Mammalian systems? Yeah. 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 Who knows? Who would have ever thought of it? I don't know how to figure this out. I have no idea. Yeah. <laughs> so, okay,
0: we're we're not yeah. busting that myth. It doesn't work. We we're just going. <laughs> doesn't work. So, well, let me
2: let me tell you something that does work if you're interested. And here's a yes, yeah. one, of the, one of the new novel traits that's coming along with with Corteva, uh, uh, and and there's been a couple of publications, papers we've published recently on this.
0: Okay, wait, Uh, has legal approved on whatever you're going to say first? Okay, just make
2: public information. (laughs) Okay,
0: Okay. great. All right. right.
2: So first of all, the the name of the trait is ZM28. uh, ZMM28. Now this is one, it's a a, a native maize trait, a native maize gene. It's existed in maize for millions of years, okay? And it's involved in plant development and, and especially reproductive development. And we have over the last 15 years, we've been working on this a long time. Wow. We have been able to modify this gene uh, slightly. So now it is a transgene, all right? It is a transgenic transgenic trait. And what it does is it stimulates uh, plant growth and development um, resulting in higher yields uh, under both high yield conditions and under abiotic stress, such as drought and heat and low nitrogen. So this is a trait that you guys are gonna hear a lot more of in the near future. Um, uh, it has been deregulated already by the USDA. Uh, so it's on the deregulatory path. Um, that's, that's still a process, but in the United States, we have it deregulated already by the USDA. So we're, we're in good shape. Uh, I've been involved in testing that for many years and it looks very exciting. Uh, we just published a paper uh, talking about what it does under drought. And it can increase yields in drought fields uh, by as much as 14%.
0: Okay. This All right. This, I believe, is something we had heard about a while ago that may have been started off as kind of the nitrogen efficiency trait.
2: It was originally. That is correct. Yes.
0: Okay. All right. I know. All right.
2: But now we've evaluated it in other environments, and it's even more exciting in some other environments. Yes.
0: Yeah. Okay. I mean... I, I mean, I have heard through the grapevines, some of these things have been happening and then you don't hear much about them forever, right? right? right. You don't know where the stuff's going in, in, in the environment. And then honestly, up until really this year, the, ta- the talk around drought stress and, uh, you know, especially nitrogen use efficiencies has been pretty low because we've had great environments you know, right. maybe the last four or five, six years. And these exactly. things really don't come back up as major topics until the right. environment presents itself.
2: Exactly, exactly.
0: And, right. and so, what? okay, here, here's, here's a little bit of a myth then or, or uh, something I hear about all the time. Or in my mind, I just need clarification. Under drought or lack of water in a field, can the plant still utilize nitrogen well
2: i'll clarify i'll i'll quali- qualify my statement it can use it but not as well as if there's enough water uh, nitrogen uptake it happens with two mechanisms one is just passive uptake with the water i mean it goes a- along for the ride you know with the water and if you have less water in the profile and if the plant is transpiring less because it's drought stress above the ground and its domates are closed or it's rolled up you are not going to take up as much nitrogen now, there is also an active nitrogen transport system in the roots, in other words, they use energy to grab little nitrate molecules and bring them in. Okay, so that, that, that will be ongoing and the drought doesn't hurt that that much, uh, but the, 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 the passive kind of diffusion of nitrogen with the water up into the plant, yes, that, that is definitely restricted. And so that's why it's oftentimes, it's very common to see plants that are under drought look like they're nitrogen stressed too, right? Because they're mm-hmm. ju- they are not taking up as much nitrogen. It is true. Yes.
0: Okay. And is that, gosh, Mike, Mike, you get in here. I'm okay. I'm. That's okay. I'm, I'm, just I'm going listening. time out here because I'm just, I, <laughs> I, I that could
1: actually happen a lot with other uh, elements too, right?
0: Oh, yes, certainly. Uh, certainly. That's what I was but just going to ask. It's particularly sulfur bad potassium? Bad
2: nit- nitrogen or nitrate because it's so water soluble. Some of the other ones are not so dependent on water, water solubility and just flowing with water. Though those are more associated with uh, with with, a, with the with the soil particles themselves and the roots just have to physically be next to them. But they don't necessarily flow with the water. But nitrate just flows with the water constantly, both up and down. We know, know we know how it flows down.
0: <laughs> it but aren't aren't some of these though? Don't we need? I mean, without with without the extra hydrogen in the soil to bind up some other particles we can't release certain nutrients for the plant to take up though either right is that, that, that kind of how that's that works true.
2: yeah some of the other ter- uh, others other uh, molecules are more complex yeah in their availability as opposed to nitrate which is just there right, <laughs>
0: right. yeah right yeah so yeah. we we need that moisture that extra hydrogen yep. basically to to break up some of the complex molecules to yeah. release nutrients and i i honestly have a fear that we are under that situation right now i've been doing a lot of plant tissue samples in our corn mm-hmm. yeah. and uh calcium magnesium have yeah. those both have been very low this year um or at least not to the standards that i'd like to see sure. um molybdenum has been low um know so some of these micros too that we really don't pay much attention to i'm just wondering if their complexity in the soil is to that of where we need more moisture to bring their availability higher into the plant uh because one we i mean we've been so drought stressed i don't i don't even care that we are fully irrigated here pivot irrigated we are not getting good water penetration for a long period of time right that i just i feel like those things are going to become an issue that many of us aren't watching for or prepared to understand i guess with with the lack of moisture in the soil profile
2: i mean that that leads to one one other concept that i've worked on to some degree was the is the value of banding nutrients versus broadcast uh i did quite a bit of work on uh, another project we had within corteva in the past regarding this unique uh um delayed nitrogen delivery um uh, product we were trying to develop, which we, we are not now, but we were working on it. And, and we saw that there was just so much advantage of just a band application, a banded application of whatever fertilizer you want to put on versus broadcast uh, for that very very in, in drought environments that's very, that's very key because if, you're, if your root system is restricted under drought, which it will be, uh, if you have that nitr- if you have nitrogen and a lot of other nutrients in a concentrated form closer to the plant underneath or to the side, so that you don't have to have that root system completely exploring the, the, the profile, that, that's one way to outsmart the drought regarding nutrient availability. The banding does have some real value. Yeah. Again, I, it's not something that everybody's gonna do, but, but as far as efficiency of nutrient uptake, that banding approach really does, does have some really positive benefits.
0: Yeah, I, I say this all the time to everyone, that placement and timing is way more important than total volume when it's it comes good. to nutrients.
2: That's for sure. That's for sure.
0: Oh, man, feed the crop, Jeff, not the soil. We there just became best. Right. We we That's just right. became best friends, Jeff. We, we just go. became best friends. There we go. Because I I can't get as many pe- I can't get a lot of people to get on that on on board with that for the fact that yeah. broadcast right. applications, building soil test levels, uh, you know, especially with dry fertilizers, is simple. Right. So people want to do it, and they say, you know, the whole thing is. Well, a pound of P is a pound of pee. A pound of N is a pound of N, yeah, you know, if really. the plant not really, yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's not really the different, I haven't, I haven't done
2: experiments, but for example, if you did some experiment and say, okay, how efficient is the corn plant at taking up nutrients directly under the root ball versus between the two, between the rows, 30 inch rows, I'll bet it's like two or three times better. I mean, it's just common sense. And if you're mm-hmm. talking about environmental impacts, I mean, yeah, we're, we're, we're we're definitely hurting the environment by, by putting broadcast materials on it's much more efficient to put them under the plant or right next to the plant and have that plant take up so much more of it before it disappears down the river, you know?
1: Yeah. yeah. I think that's the, you know, the technology coming, it's it, it came in the last four or five years too, with the Y drops and other things, yeah. the placement yeah. of the new planters, but, uh, that is still building that technology is still growing. And and that's the major thing that could happen to increasing in yields and efficiencies and everything Uh, just being better placement with our nutrients in there.
0: Absolutely. I think that's one of the biggest reasons people ask me about strip till all the time, you know, and, and strip till continues to take off, you know, it continues to be a better um, application, especially for Mm -hmm. growing corn on corn. Yep. But the very the very first thing that that is meant to do is to be a tillage equipment, uh, a conservative tillage equipment, right, for a better seed bed. But one of the biggest benefits it brings is fertilizer placement application right. with it. Yep. yep. <laughs> and, and so, if you can get those things mirrored together, it just it it's at a whole different level.
2: This is a you better it's, system. It's a totally much more efficient system for everybody involved and it takes some gearing up of equipment and, 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 and comfort level and all that sort of thing. But mm-hmm. I think it's going to pay off long-term definitely. Yeah.
0: I do too. And, and I think there's still a lot of learning processes with it because there are some downfalls to it that I've seen, especially rolling hills. If you get toad strangler rains, we start washing trenches. Right. Uh, this year, one of our biggest issues was residue cover oh, yeah. um, and the, yeah. we're blowing it off that. And then it's winds putting it right back on so the unevenness mm-hmm. it created actually caused a bigger issue because we're running over stocks right um to strip till yeah. so now we have this uneven amount of standing stocks flat stocks mm-hmm. uneven amount of residue cover so there there's things that we still need to work out but as far as the process of it it's super efficient
1: and I, I think that's another thing as our yields continue to grow when 300 bushel yields you know become a common thing there's so much residue and we're going to have to get better with our residue management as far as how it bl- blows out the back of a combine and gets spread out and, right. and manage that because we really faced a tough one as any everybody else did too it just didn't break down over a dry winter and and uh we really suffered with that right behind the combine man yeah, we, we got
2: some of those same issues even at our research center down in plainview texas uh, I don't think they got more than an inch of rain all winter long, and they were struggling this spring to to pull up their beds and make any kind of decent seed bed because they couldn't get they couldn't get rid of the residue, and they're in a, they're in a location where they can't really burn residue there and that sort of thing. So they they struggled a bit. Yeah,
0: man, we got we got off, way off track on a lot of these uh, myths that I wanted <laughs> to get through today too. <laughs> we should be back on myths again. Oh my <laughs> lord, though, this has been so much fun because the other part. Okay, here's another kind of myth. While well, we're on nutrients, so a, a corn plant. Is just as efficient of taking water and nutrients out of the second foot um, after tassel as they are taking it out of the first foot of soil profile.
2: Um, hmm, I've not heard that one put place that put that way before. Um, I would say my experience is that's uh, I, I would think the top two feet would be pretty similar. I mean, no, I mean the, the corn plant's root system is 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 pretty amazing once you get to to tasseling um, uh, and we know that some of our nutrients are moving in that profile by that point. So having a very active root system in foot two and foot three is is pretty important, uh, to make sure we capture as much as we can. Um, whether, whether the second foot is as efficient as the top foot, eh, if you, it depends on if you're looking at it on a, on a, on a a basis, a daily basis or on the season, if you're looking at it on a season, I'll, I'll argue the first, the top foot is the most critical, but if you're looking at flowering or grain fill, yeah, that second foot might actually be a little more productive because you might have a little more concentration of both available moisture and nutrients in that second foot than you will in the first foot.
0: Okay. Let's rephrase it. Okay. If, if you are feeding the top foot throughout from tassel to oh, mm-hmm. R5, right. Is, is that, um, more efficient or, I mean, can the plant take it up just as good there? I mean, the point I I think what people are looking at is the majority of water and nutrients are taken up through the root hairs that, and the root tips that are continuously growing. So the existing root mass right at the surface or within eight inches of the surface in that Mm -hmm. massive root ball around tassel time is not an efficient place for nutrient uptake at that point, because your viable root hairs and root tips are in different parts of soil profile
2: that's that that that, when you're explaining it that way yes i can agree with that that you would expect the the more we would say the more juvenile root system so in other words the younger ones they they will be more active on a per unit weight basis for example if you got 10 centimeters of these little new roots versus 10 centimeters of the the old guys at the top yeah the the, the little guys will beat the top ones any any time because the top ones are getting like wood they're getting woody and hard you know they're they're def- definitely not as efficient uh, per se uh at that time point yes uh, so there's something to be said for that yes that you would you would wa- you would want a fairly good distribution of nutrients in the second half of the season to make sure you're getting full uptake throughout the profile yes
0: so about that 18 inch zone within that soil profile during grain fill is a great area to target um, for max nutrient and water uptake. Like if we can keep that 18 inch zone area full, that's going to be one of our most efficient areas to put nutrients, water for the plant right. to more, you know, take it up easier than right. searching from a third foot area or right on the surface.
2: Right. That I would okay. agree with that in general, because that is your premium area for both nutrient concentration and frankly, water volumetric water content because the surface, no matter how much you irrigate, you're still going to struggle to keep it at as high as down deep, generally. Uh, so that that would be true. Um, you know, I'm a little biased because I've had experience. I worked in, in California at our Woodland Research Center quite a bit on this drought stuff, and there we have, we, we measure water uptake down to three meter or three meters or ten feet. <laughs> so so that's a very cool. unique environment. Now it's relative the the amount that that you take up at nine feet. relatively small compared to what you're taking up at two to three feet uh but it's amazing how roots will continue to grow uh if there are is there's good soil moisture and nutrients available
1: in respect to you know nutrient uptake and everything on that subject referring to nitrogen anyhow you've done a lot of work on hybrids and how they've evolved and and changed the way they take up a nitrogen and a few years back, you've had research showing how much N has taken up post-brown silk versus mm-hmm. older hybrids that might be 20 years right. old. What has changed in modern hybrids that created this change as far as how they take up nitrogen?
2: Yeah, there's been quite a bit of a change in the last 30 to 40 years with, with how uh, Pioneer or Corteva has, has bred corn and our, all our competitors. We know We know that this corn plant, has the capability now taking up a lot more nitrogen after flowering now. In the old days, when you got to flowering and you got your ears, boy, those plants started degrading pretty quickly between uh, European corn borer, corn rootworm and leaf diseases. Uh, th- those, those corn plants are breaking down pretty fast as I recall when I was a kid growing up in Missouri. But now we have insecticides, we have insect traits which are protecting these plants. We have uh, fungicides which is maintaining leaf area and some good plant health. So we, we have extended stay green now. And that extended stay green is helping drive yield increases, of course, in the last 30 years, because if you've got more days of green leaves intercepting light and creating carbon or fixing carbon, you're going to get higher yields. Now, to support that, you got to have ongoing uptake of nitrogen. Uh, we can't just count on remobilization of nitrogen from the stems for the whole last 50 days of growth after pollination. And so our modern hybrids will take up as much as 100 to 120 pounds of nitrogen after flowering, uh, whereas in the old days they probably only took up 20 or 30. So that is a huge impact. Now, if that if that's driven by both things in above the above ground in the leaves, just being healthier and pulling more nitrogen or demanding more nitrogen, as well as having maintaining really healthy root systems with good you know insect control, for example, and our root systems now. So you put all of these tools together in these new modern hybrids and yes, they can take up a lot more nitrogen late. And frankly, it's probably one of the factors that still limits um, yields in, in some of our growers fields is they, they, do, they don't fully understand the potential of that crop at flowering and whether or not they've actually put enough nitrogen on <laughs> to reach that potential.
1: So, so 20, 30 years ago when my father said I'd never seen any results from putting late nitrogen on, he was probably right at that time. Yeah, probably like, was, yes. I I've never, I've never seen any results from it. It's never really shown anything and something that has changed. The hybrids have been adapting from all the things you mentioned there that, uh, they can utilize late season nitrogen and push yields
0: even higher. So right. yeah, I put a, am putting a bow on everything that you just said for the fact that <laughs> I've, I've been doing some late nitrogen applications the last few years, all the way up basically until the kernel starts denting. And I, I see very little remobilization from R2 to R6 in that corn plant visually, and they are by far the most consistent and highest yields that we continue to have.
2: Yeah, you're, you're basically uh, improving the overall uh, potential of that crop because now you've, you've eliminated all those marginal plants that were a little bit on the edge regarding nitrogen availability. I mean, that's what it's about. It's a, that population, of, a field is a population of plants. And it's got a distribution and you're going to have a bunch of really strong, big guys that, yeah, if they ran out, they, they have enough nitrogen, they'll be fine. You're going to have a bunch of in the, in the middle and they're probably going to be on the edge or okay. But if you got 30% that are a little bit weaker, you don't think that extra nitrogen is going to help that 30% and that bottom 30%, that, that can make a big difference in your yield, your yield average for that field. Yeah. So that's what you're doing. You're, you're pumping up the bottom part. You're not necessarily helping the top that much, but you're preventing the bottom from falling out. Yeah. Yes.
0: I hate seeing that remobilization within the plant. You know, a lot of times right Mm -hmm. now we're, especially right now, we're just at pollination. And I just had this conversation with a grower this morning and I, I looked over at the field and we had manured this, these fields too, but some of these fields were late manure, early spring Mm application instead of a fall. And for whatever reason this year, maybe the lack of moisture, our natural mineralization and organic nitrogen breakdown from that manure seems to be very poor. Because we're, really? we're, we're visually seeing uh, lower leaf firing and senescing already, um, you know, two, three leaves up from the soil surface, and oh, we're yeah. just okay. now pollinating.
2: Oh, yeah, that's uh, not a good sign. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah.
0: You know, and that's, I mean, I ne- we need to keep every one of those leaves green all the way, in my opinion, through through kind of R3, R4, yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Otherwise, we can really end up with some tip back issues and just shrunk kernels, less test sure. weight. All of that. Me. I
2: mean, we we know that some of our super high yields now are 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 can only be uh, obtained with big kernels. I mean, you talk to Dave Hula and the guys, the, the NCGA contest winners. They've got these giant kernels, and we know what they're doing regarding nutrient availability. And so that's that's certainly that last ten percent of your yield is that kernel size at mm-hmm. the end of the year, and and that's the thing that's going to hurt you if you run out of nutrients. Uh, that's what's going to hurt you. Not so much kernel number. I mean, they'll be. You'll have little kernels on the tip, as we know, but but uh, uh, or you'll still have the kernels there. It'll just be littler. That top third will be noticeably smaller kernels. So that's a challenge. Try to get that boxy ear, get that top, get that whole thirty-five to forty kernels all about the same size, not not just the first twenty. And then it kind of tails off from there.
0: Yeah, you said ten percent, but I actually say fifteen percent. I did. There I you. said, okay. I said the eighty. The majority. I mean, eighty-five percent of the yield comes from ears per acre times kernels per ear. I agree. 15 I agree. 15% yeah. of that yeah. now is kernel weight. yeah It's yeah. what does that kernel weigh? Because yeah. we are getting these bushels off of weight more than right. volume, right? Yeah. And,
2: and that's, and, and again, it's about a population on the ear because not every kernel is the same size on that ear, but that top half of the ear, that's the ones you got to work on. The bottom ones are going to be fine. They're always going to be good and pretty uniform. That top half, that's where you're losing yield because that's the ones that are going to get, they're going to go into black layer prematurely mm-hmm. if they're if they run out of nitrogen they'll just shut down early and they'll be 20 30 percent smaller than the other kernels
1: yep i got
0: the term there jeff it's boxy ears that's, boxy we to ears. that's, boxy that's ears. what we want. talk about
2: we talk about our boxy tops
0: <laughs> absolutely i mean because i mean mike you you know that too I mean, looking at all these hybrids if you can find those consistent kernels you know everybody talks about okay we want consistent ear size we want yep. consistent plant structure we want consistent emergence, but honestly, when it comes down to it for the real top end, you gotta have consistent kernel size. You that's do. that is the, the the game changer for the very top end yield stuff. Okay. And, and we talk about it all the time. If you look at these some of these ears, they almost look like rows of ladders, mm-hmm. you know, they're coming down that that pair of that pair of kernels, yeah. they're just identical do, 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 all the way top to bottom. That, and that's, that's the
2: target for sure. Yes.
0: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you don't get any of that stuff with the big-ass flex ears, Mike, you just never know what the hell they're going to do. Adam's a big fan of
1: semi-flex
0: style hybrids or (laughs) semi-fixed. Let's put some weight on them. Let's not get these big flexy things. That's right. (laughs) All right. Uh, Another myth, Another quick myth here. Uh, Tall corn means high yields.
2: In general, in general, that's true. Yes.
0: Oh, in general. Sometimes when we talk about that, we we are careful for the fact that some hybrids are naturally shorter than other hybrids. Yes. Yes. Now, this year, in general, we are seeing shorter corn, mainly due to, I think, the environment we had with a lot of winds in June, which had really shortened up some internodes early yes. on. If yes. you that's look you're if, for sure. Yes. Yeah, if, if you look at these plants, boom, boom, boom. I mean, it's stacked internodes until so you get to V8. Then you start to see those things really starting to lengthen out. And finally, we're finishing with some height. But overall, it's short corn. So should we expect lower yields?
2: Not necessarily, because I'll, I'll clarify my previous statement. When you said tall corn, I just kind of assumed, yeah, big, big corn. But when I think of tall corn, I think of biomass. I mean, that's what we're really talking about. So you can have mm-hmm. a shorter corn plant that's got really you know, stocky little stocks, stubby little stocks, like this year, the way it sounds like you're getting. Now, if it's biomass is the same as a tall guy, when I mean, you don't get paid for tallness, you get paid for biomass. I mean, that's how you make yield is you get a certain harvest index, obviously. If you've got so many tons per, per acre of biomass, 50% of that's gonna be grain. So yeah, you, in general, tall corn equals big biomass. But if you've got a shorter corn due to a lot of wind, yes, that'll keep the internals short. That doesn't necessarily mean their yield potential is significantly reduced. Does it look as good? And are you maybe as excited about it? Maybe not because you're a little nervous. You think, well, I wish it was a little taller because it implies there was some kind of stress. Yes. When you see a shorter internode, that means that in general, that plant saw something that caused stress. Even shorter internodes imply stress because that, that the, the, the reason you get short internodes is wind causes mechanical damage. And mechanical damage causes the plant hormone ethylene to be produced and ethylene makes this this cells shorter they don't elongate as much so that's called a stress hormone for a reason it's re- in response to stress does it mean it, it really shut your yield down not necessarily but it, it implies a stress on some days that resulted in shorter corn
1: yeah yeah and i i think couldn't that relate to even ear development at that time too a high wind and a lot of ethy- ethylene being produced and it could and-
2: certainly could because uh Lots of things are happening in that ear before we see it, as you know, and 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 the, the balance of all the plant hormones uh, anywhere from about V five to V eight is super critical regarding your row number around the ear. So I, I focus a lot on that regarding some of these traits. Um, and then then later on, as you get to V say V ten to V T, that's when your kernels per ear is going to be determined. Uh, and so having lots of wind and beating around the plants during those. Various stages can have some some potential impact. Again, yeah. they're, they're they're impacting photosynthesis because because that kind of stress will actually force the plants to shut stomates too a little bit because that's mechanical damage and they say ah oh, I better shut down you know I, I'm losing control and so so it's kind of another form of drought stress if you will.
0: Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised um, as guys as we're getting into this this time where people are going to go start pulling little ears you know, coming off the shoots and starting to count rows round. I, I, I would say right now, do not be surprised if you see a lot more 16 rounds this Mm -hmm. year in hybrids that you may have seen 18s and 20s last year. Um, These Mike flex hybrids, you know, I've I've been doing that. (laughs) Yeah. And and I, I would say in general this year, so far, the ones that I've been doing, I'm seeing probably less kernels round yep. than what I saw last year, um, which had brought me back to those windy environments, V5 mm-hmm. to V8 corn Yep, that has been devastating. One is super hot, super windy, all at that same time. And that's I think why,
2: that, That's why I, I get a little upset when people talk about, yeah, stressing the corn at that stage. Oh, let's stress the corn and make the roots go down. Uh, well that's the last thing you want to be doing is stressing corn from v5 to v8 because you where are did, sending your kernel number your kernel was around at that time. You rose
0: where did that come from? Where where did that come from? Yeah, we gotta it let it
2: root down originally, but I've I've heard it my whole life. Yes.
0: God, we need that corn yeah. to root down. We don't <laughs> yeah. let that corn yeah, root down. We're gonna be screwed late in the season. So well, the the give, only thing we will
2: give you a little little clarification of my understanding of that. What what will happen under stress? is the plant will proportionally put a little more energy into roots because it knows it needs roots to get water. Okay. So it will put some energy into roots, but think about it. If it's, if it, if it senses enough stress that it's doing that, it's already shut down. It's photosynthetic rate already. So you've slowed down its growth rate already. That's never a good thing. That's never a good thing because you've already reduced your yield potential now.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And it, 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 tell me if I'm wrong here, but roots will not, out proportionately a grow versus above ground growth at the same rate either right I mean in those stages like you said they may put a little bit more energy into those roots but but above ground height and root growth or root length is somewhat proportionate yeah they're, they're it's always your, going
2: to be strongly linked yes they will they're never going to get totally out of balance no Otherwise, exactly, you have roots ten feet deep and plants two foot tall. We never see that. <laughs> yeah, and yeah.
0: and so like this year, one of my biggest concerns as we get later into the season too here is a smaller root development based off of shorter plant structure due to earlier stresses that we incurred in the year, which has shortened internodes, which has also shortened up root length, um, both either vertical or horizontal, depending in on the root structure. That,
2: that is true. Yes, they they. Because if you see less biomass above ground, you can better believe you have less biomass underground. Yes, they're always they're always strongly linked.
0: So later nutrient and water management could be critical if we want to maintain above average yields. Because yep. yep. we can't we can't efficiently search or scavenge the soil as much as we usually can. Right. Uh, we can't rely on that third foot or fourth foot for very final irrigation. Right. Um, you know, those are things I think people are going to have to understand uh to really keep the yields at top end levels mm-hmm. um versus like last year i mean everything seemed like it was handed to us last year right right tall corn you know the corn was as tall as we've ever seen it exactly. roots were they were as efficient as they've ever been mother nature came in nice with timely rains uh, mineralization mm-hmm. was as high yeah. as it's ever been lots of yeah. free nutrients
2: yeah
0: cooler nights not a lot of stuff over 100 degrees at all we didn't have hardly that was
2: your best growing season a lot of these mm-hmm. guys will ever see in their lives
0: <laughs> I know. And, and we're going into the, we're doing, we're looking at things this year. Um, I, I like to be optimistic because there's still a ton of potential. Oh, but yeah. in my opinion, it's going to take a little bit more work to yeah. maintain that same type of potential. And you, I know you're a nitrogen guy too. So I don't think 0.8 nitrogen use efficiency is going to get us where we want to go this year versus no. where we have been in the past.
2: No, not if you had that kind of mineralization last year, you get the bonus from that last year. So, so yeah, 0.8 this year with moderate or, or lower mineralization, you're going to run out at R3. Yeah. You're going to run out.
0: Yeah. That's I'm glad that you said that because um, <laughs> we were actually running the nitrogen model. And, and like I said, I'm doing a lot of those plant tissue samples right now too. And last year we did a little bit extra nitrogen and get some of these real high NCGA yields, Yep. but it wasn't excessive. And we did it real late, right. but this year we've already pumped on everything that we damn near pumped on last year. And we're just through pollination. And like I said, I'm already seeing lower leaves nesting. I'm, uh, plant tissues are way below where they have been. And I'm going, man, we were, we actually were really fairly efficient last year. I think we're going to need probably another 60, 70 pounds from here to the end to get us well over this 300 bushel that we want to be. Yeah. How often did uh, yeah. you hear that though last year, Adam, when you got done with
1: harvest and you were talking to growers and they're going like, I'm going to do exactly what I did this year. Cause it all worked <laughs> out great. And yeah. and, and we got to adapt to the years that we get the cards, we get dealt. I mean, every year is going to be different and deal, uh, Get you different conditions so we got to adapt to those yeah oh man but yeah that's,
2: that's, uh, yeah you're, you're 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 looking at a little bit of a rough haul here the second half of the year if you're you're seeing any kind of senescence at all at flowering and you put on that cut kind of nutrient load whoo yeah these plants are they're, they're they're not reaching the total nitrogen bank in the soil at all that's for sure no.
0: yeah yeah mm-hmm. yeah whether they're not scavenging you know whether the placement isn't correct right. or the the root system isn't as elaborate you know, whatever it is, we've got to figure out a way to adjust to it because it's showing us that we didn't do it right. We just don't quite know what we didn't do right.
2: right. And,
0: <laughs> and when and when you talk total pounds, you know, you're having a freaking heart attack this year, a dollar a pound nitrogen. Uh,
2: exactly. This is the bad year to be putting more nitrogen <laughs> <I> on. <know. laughs>
0: you're going I'm like, go, oh my God. Like, do we really want that top end or do we, can we bring that down? Can we still make right, some not- money?
1: Not fill that tank up again for the year, but uh, yeah, yeah. I tell you what, we we could talk with you, Jeff, for probably the next three hours. Oh, <laughs> I think it's I so could interesting. <laughs> we're 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 hungry for a deeper level of agronomy on that aspect of it. You know, like Adam mentioned earlier, you know, you could Google a lot of the information that is readily available, but this is deeper, and and I
0: appreciate that. So, oh God, I just got a good one. I just uh, just found it and this one go. drives me nuts <laughs> we can give 40 pounds plus nitrogen credit to a corn crop following soybeans because soybeans put 40 pounds of nitrogen back in the soil
2: no they don't,
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: no, they don't.
2: <laughs> yeah that, that 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 that's definitely a myth in my opinion I, I don't see any actual justifiable uh nitrogen credit for soybeans anymore at all the but only event advan- the advantages in and having a better seed bed for better uniform emergence that's all the advantage i've seen
0: yeah that absolutely uh better uniform emergence and quicker uh soil temp increase yeah,
2: yeah temperatures increase so you just got a yep. better crop coming out of the ground and that's worth that's that's worth that 40 pounds of end credits that's where it's yeah. coming from it's not coming from the nitrogen
0: yeah and i, I think maybe the, the i mean we went through this earlier on mike we, we broke down like old days yeah uh, inoculated soybeans can produce X amount of nitrogen. You're raising three or six, 60 bushel soybeans, right? But we were producing 500, 400, 460 pounds of nitrogen or whatever. And, and they, they were taking, uh, 400 to 450 (laughs) pounds to get 60 bushel. So that's kind of, I think where this whole thing had started in reality. Yeah. They could produce that much. They only took this. Maybe you get that, but in today's environment, hell we're, you raise a hundred bushel soybeans. You're not leaving shit for nitrogen in there. In yeah. fact, you're probably a deficit in the soil
1: yeah.
0: going and into that
2: 34, 34% protein in that bean. That takes a hell of a lot of nitrogen <laughs> to get yeah. that protein. Yep. It's a lot of nitrogen. Making so, protein. Yeah, we, we, we do a lot of soil sampling and I do some of the <clears throat> nitrogen rate work we're doing in Corteva now for corn. And <clears throat> we always try to do it on after soybeans, because we tend to have lower residual nitrogen in a soybean field on a part per million basis in the spring than we do in any corn field. So of course they're taking all the nitrogen.
0: <laughs> right. Well and that that's the other thing. I mean when we soil sample these in the spring, yeah. that should tell us what we have. Yeah. You can't magically add in 40 pounds. No. I mean it, it should be tested. It should be there if it was there. Right.
2: And it's, and not, and in it's our, not there. In
0: our meeting, in our meetings with the uh, area crop
1: consultants in central Nebraska anyhow. A lot of them have been adjusting over the years too. You know, 20 years ago they gave you that credit. Today, right. many of them say, "I don't count any credit for soybeans. It's all the other benefits of bring bean spring, but not not the end credit."
2: Right. Yeah, yeah I agree I, completely.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I, I I thought I was going through the list and I saw that one and that one's dear and near <laughs> to my heart because I I had been tracking yields through our plot system the past seven years, and we have been. Yeah, you should just normally have a 15 plus bushel advantage in a rotated acre over a monocrop system in corn. I mean, yep. just call it 15, regardless of yep. where you go. And we have had so many years, these good years where we're within an average, sometimes the corn on corn plots out yield the corn on soybean plots yep. or they're within two or three bushel. Right. Yep. And at that, and then you go back and you start looking at inputs and resources and what we're doing and, and hell, I mean, did we make more money on the soybean ground? Yes, if we gave those credits because we were within some bushel, but you should always have 15. Right. You know, that's what I'm saying. Right. And, and I feel like we have been under fertilizing. We've been under, we, we haven't been pushing the environment that it has given us to create more yield where we work really right. hard on those corn on corn acres we that's a tougher environment to start with
2: exactly. That's right. That's right. Yeah, it's, 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 a, it's a lot about management. That's right. And I used to run here at Marion, Iowa, at the research center where I worked. You know, I, I ran a lot of because I was doing a lot of regulate, regulated work, you know, so we had to be in the same field every year, right, the way we we're doing it. And so I was doing corn on corn for like 15 years and I learned how to manage that stuff because otherwise people would laugh at me and say, You're, you're giving me crappy yield data. Well, I learned how to manage the residue and manage the seed bed, and manage the planting date and manage everything. And so I could get whatever yield you want every year. No problem. So so so, yeah, I I, I, over, I, completely got away with any concern about following soybeans as a yield advantage because I can manage it. But most most growers on a on a space, you know, just the scale that they work, they can't do it maybe quite as as, as much as I would do. But but there's ways to get around. it. Of course, there is. <laughs>
0: You just yep. nailed one thing, yep. too, that goes back to that benefit of soybean ground was planting date because yep. there is a, an advantage of planting date. Yes. And if you can be in that environment to get it done earlier at warmer temperatures with a more uniform seed bed, mm-hmm. that's what beans bring you. That's where that oh, yeah. automatic 15 bushels should be there year in, year out. One last thing, because yep. we've been on this forever. And I feel like Mike's getting bored right now because I'm just still in this whole thing. And he's looking at <laughs> his watch going, yeah, we've been here forever. One last thing. Do, do corn hybrids shorten up their relative maturity with delayed planting?
2: Uh, small. Yes, they can. A small amount. Yes. The GDU uh, development scale changes a little bit when you plant. Depends on what you mean about late planting. You mean like two weeks later or you mean like a month later?
0: Uh, like so a month Yeah, the month month, later.
2: Definitely in a month, they will speed up. They actually go a little faster. Yes.
0: Yeah. And the research that I had seen actually said on average 6.8 GDUs per day after the 1st of May in our growing environment, (laughs) central Nebraska or whatever. So basically,
2: yeah, I haven't seen that specific number, but that makes that makes sounds about right to me. Yeah, yeah.
0: So if you were needing fourteen hundred and sixty GDU's to finish, you know, to or silking, maybe yeah, fourteen sixty is silking, and you planted May fifth, May tenth for easy math. Mm -hmm. That corn should really only need thirteen hundred and ninety eight. Mm-hmm. GDUs to silking because that'd be 6.8 per day on 10 days, 68 less. Yeah.
2: All right. Yeah, that sounds reasonable to me. That's just uh, at 22 or 3 GDUs a day or 25, depending on if you're hot at night. uh yep. Yeah, that's just a couple days difference. Yeah, that, that, that can easily change yeah. that much. Yes.
0: Okay. Now three, you're three. The, here's the question I have on that though when does it make that change? it when does it shorten that up does it shorten it up in the vegetative side to flowering or from flowering to black layer
2: huh you know i don't know i don't know for sure i don't know i don't have a good answer for you on that one for sure i I really don't know my guess is it would be before flowering that's my guess but i don't know because you would think the plant if from an evolutionary standpoint if it feels if it senses that the season is zooming along I want to get through this kind of wasteful vegetative stage first so I can reproduce. So that from an evolutionary standpoint, that makes sense, but I don't have any data on that at all. I have no idea.
0: (laughs) Well, we, Mike and I were, we were just talking about this the other day. I was trying to time uh, some rootworm, some rootworm beetle uh, applications, some adult beetle sprays and, and going through the growing growing models with our corn hybrids, knowing where we're at, when we planted it, trying to make these adjustments. And then I got to thinking, okay, am I going to be way off on silking GDUs? Because a lot of this corn and our delayed corn this year, you know, could be easily May 20th through May 25th actually got planted. And where do I take that off then? Do I take it, do I take all 6.8 off yeah. prior to, to silking to get this? And and so Mike and I, my observation is that it comes off all vegetative, for yeah. the fact that we see these all these fields somewhat flowering at the same time relative to their... Out.
2: Yeah, they're catching up.
0: <laughs> yeah, they are. They're catching right. up to flowering and that their reproductive life cycle is going to be pretty much the same. not
2: what it normally is. Yeah, that, that make, that's my guess. I, I, don't, I haven't seen it for sure, but that makes sense to me. Yeah.
0: Is there any way you can do tonight? some research on that and get back to it? <laughs> yeah, I'll get back to you on that, guys. <laughs> one thing I do
1: I do notice and I have noticed is it, the fuller the season the hybrid is, the more it'll do it too. I'm mm-hmm. not sure if that's true, but mm-hmm. for our footprint, 116, 118-day corn's full season, and it's more apt to do it than like 105-day would.
2: Yeah, it really needs to speed up. Yeah, because proportionally it, it would never it senses it can't make it to the end of the year. I don't know if it's got some. Something to do with, I mean, normally we don't think of temperate corn as being photoperiod sensitive, but I gotta wonder if that, if those day lengths might have some little tiny effect on corn at something like this, because it can't be totally photoperiod uh, photo neutral. There's gotta be something that it senses with day length. Uh, right. So that's my guess is there's some little photo period thing going on there that we don't really talk about much
1: yeah not
0: not near the level that soybeans do but no, not something like in me. there right. some right. component right. right well this this is no shit i was in a field this morning uh, we were doing some ncga testing so we have multiple planning dates in there mm-hmm. to just figure out okay what is the best planning date? because we know there are good planning dates each year we just don't know what that is till the end of the exactly. year exactly <laughs> <laughs> so we do multiple ones to try and hit it 117 day hybrid planted basically it was three and a half weeks apart and they both were damn near silk today i mean they were they were they're within four or five days of the same exact flowering stage right and i'm gonna
2: you also have to to remember your gd accumulation in that early planting was lower the first few weeks it was cooler right
0: right yeah (laughs) so you gotta keep
2: that in mind that early those early couple of weeks if it, uh, you just don't accumulate much. And if you happen to plant that second planting in a hot spell, man, they can catch up really fast. <laughs> and it's simply GDU. Yeah.
1: You get five or 10 a day and you're getting yeah. barely
0: in the, 15 for days.
2: under 20. Boom. That can make up a difference up really fast. <laughs>
0: Right now you're really going to make me go back and look at the weather data on these <laughs> things <right>. cuz <laughs> go for the
2: simple you, answers first. <laughs> yeah.
0: You dig into that, Adam. You'll have I tend to always bypass the simple answers first and I'm always <laughs> looking for something else. Oh Very man, good. we we better get, we better wrap this up. Man, we could do this forever, but hey, Jeff, really appreciate. It. This has been a fantastic time. I tell you what, I would be extremely interested if there is anything that you're working on currently that uh, you would be able to share on a podcast, you know, come post harvest. Mm-hmm. That's new and exciting as well. We'd love to have you back on the show here. Sure, uh, let's but, keep
2: that in mind. Yeah. There might be something I could uh, have approval to talk about. So to speak, I have to be a little careful because I'm not actually an employee <laughs> anymore. Yeah, so it all has to be public information.
1: <clears throat> yeah. 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 I, I echo that. I appreciate that and, and taking the ag discussion to the next level. It's been a, very good information that we've shared here today. So yeah, well, next time
2: the opportunity, guys, and <clears throat> wish you well during the season. Sounds like you're having a having a little bit of a tougher year this year, but that's what you get paid the big bucks for, right?
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's right.
1: <laughs> you know Still the critical. years
0: t- yeah, when grain markets go up, the year's always tough.
2: Right. <laughs> it never <laughs> is easy, right? <laughs> it's
0: never easy. All right. Take care. Thanks.